Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we started um, two weeks ago because last week was the Passover. Um, two weeks ago, we started Hebrews chapter 11, and we looked at Abel, we looked at Enoch, we looked at Noah. This chapter is so rich that we could probably spend, when I, when I, I preached a whole sermon series on Hebrews chapter 11, and I think it took like almost three or four months to get through the whole chapter. So we're going to kind of condense it tonight and just look, I, we're just going to look at Abraham and Moses. I mean, there's a whole lot other people we could look at, but it's like, okay, if we're going to pick two characters from the Old Testament who are pretty good heroes, you really can't skip over Abraham or Moses. So let's first of all look at um, Abraham four times in, or actually three times in the New Testament. Um, it tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, it goes all the way back to Genesis 15 where um, God told him he would have many descendants and he looked up in the stars to see the stars and it said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so we've got this passage of scripture that Paul tells us about in Romans chapter 4 verses 20 through 21 that really kind of give a commentary, like a really powerful commentary on, on, the, on the total life of Abraham. So Romans four twenty through 21 says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham was fully convinced, he was strongly convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And if you just stop and think about that, think of all the things that God has promised to do. I mean, you could go through the Bible and count up all the promises of God. Faith is saying, I am fully convinced that God is able to do that. So that was so. we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and it's kind of the faith chapter. So when we look at Abraham, we can basically say this <clears throat> for Abraham. Authentic faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. And uh, did you get my water? Okay, thanks. Um, the term for being fully convinced, thank you, sweetie. Um, here means in in the Romans chapter, being fully convinced means that to be completely certain without a shadow of a doubt. That's a pretty strong faith to be to be absolutely certain that God is able to do what He's promised. And so let's just stop and maybe have a little bit of audience participation tonight. What are some of the promises of God that just pop into your mind that you? believe God's going to accomplish in your life, that you're fully convinced that He's able to accomplish? What are some promises of God? That He'll finish the work He started. He who... Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work will finish it. Okay, great. What's another promise of God? That you'll have eternal life. He'll never leave or forsake us. We could probably... If we thought about it and looked in the Scriptures, we probably could come up with a lot of promises of God and faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do that. So let's, let's dive into Hebrews 11 and let's look at 8 through 12 and let's find out. Um, and remember the term there, by faith. 
We, we looked at that two weeks ago, but when the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, it's a little grammatical construction that, that basically can be translated acting on the basis of faith or having this active faith. It's a faith that's not passive. It's an active, energetic faith. So let's, let's read verse um, 8 through 12. By faith, or acting on the basis of faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So what I want us to see here from this little passage of Scripture about Abraham is three descriptions of Abraham's faith in the life of Abraham. Three descriptions of faith in the life of Abraham. Let's look at the first one. Again, what is faith? The first thing we see in Abraham is faith is evidenced by immediate obedience, immediate obedience, even when we don't have all of the answers. You don't get this in your English translation, but it's interesting the way that the writer of Hebrews gives the grammar here. When it says Abraham obeyed when he was called, the way it's worded is almost as if God, he didn't even wait for God to finish the sentence before he started leaving. It was like this whole idea that Abraham immediately obeyed God without any hesitation as God was calling him. So it's like God said, Abraham, go. And before God could get to the period at the end of the sentence, Abraham was up and he was going. I mean, it was immediate obedience. And where did he go? says he went to a place that he didn't know where he was going. How would you like that? Get up and go, and you'll know when you get there. I have no idea where I'm going, but I'm going to obey immediately. Here's what Martin Luther said on this passage of Scripture. Martin Luther said, Faith is not knowing where you're going, what you're doing, what you're suffering, but to follow the bare voice of God and to be led and driven rather than to drive. What was that? You know, they had cards back then, did they? Notice the active verbs here, though. What, I mean, just look at the active verbs. Abraham obeyed. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live. Faith is active. It's, it's acting upon the basis of God's direction. When God commands, we immediately obey, whether we know exactly all the answers or not. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Old Testament like we've been doing and read the story here. So let's go back to Genesis 12, 1 through 5. This is where Abraham pretty much shows up on the scene. So keep one hand in Hebrews 11 and let's go back to Genesis 12 and let's see the calling of Abraham. Let me just give you a little bit of background here. Abraham was living in a place called Ur, which is really modern day Iraq. And Joshua tells us that Abraham was an idol worshiper. So before God calls Abraham, he is a pagan, non-believer, living in modern-day Iraq. Doesn't have a clue about who God is, does he? He's a pagan. 
Okay, we got to remember, we often think of Abraham, father Abraham, and many sons, many sons had father. You know, we think about Abraham being a man of faith, but before God sovereignly called him, he was a pagan that had no idea who God was. So this really shows sovereign grace that God just called Abraham out of the blue and said, get up and go, and Abraham, you know, who are you? He doesn't. He listens to the voice of God and goes. So, so Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before God changed his name, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and with in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So they got up and left. Now think about how this would have messed up Abraham's life. Does God mess up our lives? Abraham was a comfortable pagan living in Ur, probably worshiping some weird idol. He had his wife, he had his family, he had his herds, he had his flocks, he had everything his heart desired, and God comes to him out of the blue in sovereign grace and says, I'm picking you, Abram, you pagan, Gentile, to get up and go. And when you get there, you'll know. Now, was there any GPS back then? Okay, okay. And how old's Abraham? Okay, so you're a 75-year-old man, and God says, okay, I want you to leave everything that you everything that's comfortable to you, everything that you know, for a God you can't see, and I want you to go and obey. And what does he do? He immediately gets up and goes. And that is faith. That's got to be supernatural faith. That's not the type of faith that just we can muster up within ourselves. It's got to be something that God puts in us. Um, true faith is obedience when you don't have all the answers. Sometimes you just got to get up and go. Let me give you a quote from David Platt from his book, Radical. I remember You guys remember a few years ago I went through Radical. You may remember this quote. He says, as a Christian, it would be a grave mistake to come to Jesus and say, let me hear what you have to say and then I'll decide whether or not I like it. <laughs> if you approach Jesus this way, you will never truly hear what he has to say. You have to say yes to the words of Jesus before you even hear them. What's the song we sing? I'm trading my sorrows. I mean, what's the chorus? Yes, Lord. Yes. The only appropriate response to God is, yes, Lord. Even before we even know what he's going to ask us to do. Yes, Lord. So our response should be immediate. Um, I think I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because there's, there's always new people. Um, there was a time in our life where we were on the precipice of having to make a decision for the Lord, um, our family, and, and we weren't really sure what God was calling us to do. Um, I graduated from seminary in 2004, and um, we knew that our time at the church was coming to a close. I was a youth pastor, and I knew God had, had called me on to, to either be a church planner or a senior pastor. And so I had a seminary buddy that said, hey, we have this church plant um, outside of Fort Collins. Um, it's a little town called Laporte, and um, the church has been dead for two years. There's a building. Um, it's just kind of sat fallow. It, the grass has grown, and no, we're trying to make it look like it's not a church so that when we relaunch it, people will know it's a church. And they need, they need a church planner. Would you and your wife consider going and starting this church? 
And so Don and I said, well, we'll pray about it. And so we prayed about it. And um, we went up to Fort Collins and visited the, 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 the sponsoring church was called Emmanuel Baptist Church. And it's now Emmanuel Community Church. And we went there to a worship service and we met a few people and we went, you know, looked at the facility. And um, the weird thing about it was Aiden was what, about six years old, six, seven, six-ish? Finished first grade. So we, we pull up, and Aiden says, I've seen this place before. We'd never been there before in our life. And we're like, what? And Aiden's like, I've seen this in a dream. And so that kind of freaked us out, like, okay, God, is this like a, something you're trying to tell us here, or what, what is this? And so um, basically we, we felt at that time that maybe God was calling us to leave the youth pastor position which would have been a really tough thing because um, we wouldn't have any funding hardly at all. We'd have to go into this blind where we may have we may have had a little funding, but I would have to leave a job that I got paid good as a youth pastor, you know, lived in a parsonage where we had a home um, to go plant a church where we didn't know if anybody would show up. We didn't know if we'd have a salary. We didn't know if we'd have health insurance. We didn't know what we were going to do, but we felt like this may be what God was calling us to do. And, and if we went and told our pastor we knew at that point that it would mean like we would have to, there was no, ba- there was no, it was a point of no return. You know, it's like, this is it. And so we prayed through this and, and we just kind of sensed this may be what God's calling us to do. And we decide on a Saturday when we're getting really close to having to turn our paperwork in and, and become official and we're like, let's just drive up there one more time and, and let's just kind of look at it. And so we drove up there and we, we got out and we, um, we looked at the church. We drove around the neighborhoods. We kind of drove up into the canyon. And um, I had an eerie feeling the whole time. Um, and I didn't talk to Dawn about it. She had an eerie feeling. I guess you'd call it. It was an eerie feeling. Or what would, no, that's not the word I would use. What would be the word you'd use? <laughs> I just know the feeling. You just know the feeling. She knows the feeling. So she had a feeling. And and normally when we drive around in the car, I'm pretty talkative. I'm a talkative guy. So like Don says, my grandpa, when I was growing up, said I had verbal diarrhea. He said, you just talk, talk, and talk. Don is, a, Don is not a verbal processor. I'm a verbal processor, so I have to process by talking. She sits there and kind of listens to me, and, and maybe after three days after she's thought about it, she has this brilliant thought that she's been thinking about, and then she, you know, she talks after three or four days because it's taken that while for her to process because she's a thinker and a processor. I'm a splatter it all out there. And so anyway, as we're traveling and driving around, I'm not splattering. I'm just kind of pensively thinking and she's pensively thinking and um and so we get back home and we um we go to bed or she goes to bed and i think i've told this story before um i I go into our living room to pray and i couldn't pray i I literally could not pray it's the first time i've never been able to pray it's like dear jesus just like nothing happening i'm like what in the world is going on and i just felt like this really like weird sensation. And then I walked down the hall and I, and I really literally thought there would be a demon in the bathroom. I mean, it was just that strong. And then I went and lay an oppression. And then I went and lay down the bed and I felt this weight on my chest. Like I couldn't, like it was sinking me into the bed and I, you know, and then I, I just like kind of touched on. I said, are you, well, I can't remember what I said. He was like, are you feeling things? She's like, she immediately got up. She's like, no, I am not. I am not doing it. You know, she's like, there's, we, I don't know what we're supposed to be doing here. And then she's like, call your dad, call your dad. We need somebody to pray for us. I'm like, it's midnight. Call your dad. I don't care. So I called my dad, because my dad's a pastor. I called my dad, and, and you know, he kind of prayed with us. <laughs> He's like, okay, thanks for waking me up. But, um, <laughs> and so 
our issue at that point was a hard decision because was it, was it spiritual warfare and we were supposed to go there? And this was God's way of saying, you need to go there? Or was this spiritual warfare saying, you don't need to go there? So it was one of those things where we didn't know exactly which way to go. And um, as we prayed about it, um, I finally just said, I, I don't think we're supposed to do this. And so I called the guy and said, you know, we're just, I don't think it's time, I don't think we're supposed to do this. And once I said that, the weight lifted, and it was like this huge burden lifted. And then like two days later, I get a call from Emmanuel saying, we'd like for you to come and interview here. So, I mean, God worked it out, but it was one of those situations in our life where we were on the precipice of having to make a decision, and we really didn't know. We, I, I mean, I sat there, we did the math, like, how are we going to feed our family? some sort of darkness there you know like we could sense that kind of darkness and it wasn't should we flee the darkness or should we embrace the darkness that we need to go into that darkness because lots of places people are called into dark places and that's probably how I would describe it that it just felt like a dark place to us now some people might be from the ports and I feel I'm sorry but just when we just felt this darkness it was just a darkness there and i think it was just the lord revealed this is not his will for us i don't think it had much to do necessarily with the town but for in our processing of that it was like okay maybe he's calling us into this really hard place and there is going to be some some spiritual warfare and even if we don't see how the paycheck's going to come we still need to do this is why i think sean's bringing this up because i think it came with this scripture for him in prayer that mm-hmm. you go. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. where he's calling you or what he is going to provide. He is going to give you the means to be doing what he calls you to do. Whatever he's calling you to, he will equip you for it, but we need to say yes to whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's where it was tricky because which way was he calling us? And that took some time to think through. But yeah. Yeah. And, the, and in my journal during that time, that Romans chapter um, 4 passage was really. <laughs> I just meditated on that for a long time. It just if God says go, you go. And for us, it was like, and, and you know, when the committee at Emmanuel said, "How do you guys feel about coming to Sterling?" There's nothing here. I remember Mike Lauer saying, "You know, they're, they're, we're getting a Home Depot." <laughs> and I think I said something like, "Well, as long as there's Walmart and Home Depot, we'll be fine." And I think I remember, I remember saying this to the committee, and I distinctly remember saying this to me. I said, "You know, God's called us to ministry, whether it's in, in Antarctica." Or whether it's in Sterling or whether it's wherever, we want to go where God wants us to go. And so um, the, the point of the matter is sometimes obeying God doesn't make sense. It's scary. But when he calls you as king to go, you say, yes, Lord. So that's the first thing we see about Abraham is that he went. Authentic faith goes even when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Secondly, not only does faith obey immediately even when it doesn't make sense faith is also evidenced by a patient expectation for our true and final home where where was abraham waiting to go let's go back to the hebrews passage what does it say there in hebrews 11 what was he looking for what was he what was his what was his goal let's turn back there um it said that by faith in verse 10 well let's look at verse 9 by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations now 
he went to live in tents. Do you realize that Abraham was a temporary resident? He never really set down roots. If you go and read Genesis, does Abraham ever settle down? He's always traveling around. He never sets down roots. He's, he's a temporary resident. He's a sojourner. He's, got, he's, not, he's not comfortable in this world. He knows this isn't his true world. And what's the picture of a tent? What's a tent a picture of? You don't go live in a tent, do you? I mean, hopefully not. <laughs> now, even no, like nomads in the desert, they live in tents. And when the weather gets bad, you move your tent. Or when you have herds that need to have better grass, you, you move your tent. You're always moving around. It's a portable picture. The whole idea of a tent is that I don't stay in one place for a very long time. I'm a gypsy or whatever. I'm a vagabond. What was he looking forward to? A city. Now, how is a city a different metaphor than a tent? What does a city represent? It's the exact opposite. A city's permanent, it's stable, and God has promised one day that we won't be temporary residents here on earth, but we will have a permanent home in the city. What's the city? The new Jerusalem, that we will be there in the permanent dwelling place of God. Even the tabernacle, if you think about the tabernacle, it was a portable thing in the Old Testament. And then the temple was a little bit more stationary. And then Christ came as the ultimate tabernacle. And then when we get to heaven, it will be the ultimate, final dwelling place. But verse 10 is the key verse there because what was Abraham doing? He was looking forward. He was looking forward to that city. He was continually, constantly gazing at that city. And we know what the city was. We've already answered that. The city was his home in heaven. His home in heaven. Are we looking forward to heaven? Or are we settling down roots here so much that we're comfortable in this world that this is what we long for? Your tent's for sale? Okay. It's a choice to stay in here. It's a choice to stay. Okay. Well, let's read some passages. Yeah, ready to vacate. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Let me just put that up there. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So where's our true citizenship? In heaven. We're just resident aliens here. We're just sojourners. We're just um, temporary vagabonds here on earth. This is not our real home. Um, the problem is, is when we think this is our real home, that's where we get into trouble. First uh, Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Peter, the whole book of First Peter is you're exiles, you're aliens, you're strangers in a strange land. You're living as strangers in a strange land and so your life's going to be different. You don't belong to this earth. Kent Hughes has said this, it's a dangerous thing when a Christian begins to feel permanently settled in this world. So true authentic faith lives not for today, but for what? That day. And it's amazing that Abraham looked forward. Abraham knew there was heaven. I don't know how he knew that. But he was looking forward to the day where, Sarah, we're no longer going to live in tents. We are going to be in the presence of God. And I don't think he had the full revelation of all of that. But I think that somehow the Bible says here he was looking forward to that city. Now, whether he knew who Jesus was 
from Nazareth, but I think he understood there was going to be a Messiah. There was going to be a future Redeemer. God was going to make all things new. I think he looked forward to that. So, so that's authentic faith as you're looking forward to, to that. And then the third thing is faith is evidenced by a hopeful belief in a faithful God. Now, it's funny because in verses 11 and 12, he brings Sarah into that, and it talks about, you know, she was past the age of childbirth, and she gave birth to Isaac. Um, here's the issue. Um, is he talking about Sarah here, or is he talking about Abraham's faith? Sarah's faith, Abraham's faith. Commentators are split down the middle. Some commentators think he's talking about Sarah. Others think he's talking about Abraham. I won't be... Um, dogmatic on this but i think he's talking about abraham um the niv gives the best translation the literal translation for power to conceive literally means to deposit sperm so i think he's talking about a man there just when you look at the original greek but here's here's um, optimism when you're an optimist george sweeting said this optimism is when an 85 year old man marries a 35 year old woman and moves into a 12 room house next to an elementary school What did Abraham believe God could do? Sarah, you're way past childbearing age. I'm way past childbearing age. But God is going to be what? God is going to be, what does it say there? Verse 11, since she considered him faithful, faithful who had promised. God was faithful. And we go back to that Romans passage, Romans 4. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered us up or delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So let me sing to you a hymn. I'm not going to sing to you. Let me read to you a hymn and see if you remember this hymn. Standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let His praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I now can see, perfect present cleansing in the blood for me. Standing in the liberty where Christ makes free, Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises I cannot fall. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior as my all in all. Standing on the promises of God. Are you standing on the promises of God? That's Abraham's faith. I have the immediate obedient faith that when God says go, I'm going to say yes, Lord. Even if I don't have all the answers because it's not the size of my faith. It's who my faith is in. Because sometimes, can you just have a little bit of faith? But is that, what's, is that really what's going to get you through? A lot of people say, well, you know, you just have to have more faith. Just have more faith. Is that really good advice? Or is it stand on the promises of the one who's never going to let you fall? It's more who your faith is in. Not so much mustering up more faith. It's my faith is in the God whose promises cannot fail. 
So let me just ask you tonight, as you think about Abraham, what are some things that you're facing that God may be doing in your life that He's calling you to stand on His promise? You may not know all the answers. You may not know all the, the outcome. You don't, may not know what He's doing, but, but you're in a posture of saying, Yes, Lord. And that's all you can do. That immediate faith. All right, so let's move on to Moses. So we're going to skip down through this. and Let's go down to verse um, 23. Sorry we skipped over Jacob and Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but that's okay. Um, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I kind of emphasized it, but what key word shows up in that passage of Scripture? Well, faith. They were not afraid. Now, Moses' faith is a little different than Abraham's. Abraham's was this immediate obedience. When you don't know what's going to happen, Moses' faith was, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to have this courage in the face of overwhelming opposition. I'm not going to fear. So let's look at three distinguishing marks of Abraham, I mean of Moses' faith. What are what are some things we see in this passage about Moses? First of all, authentic faith requires radical courage. Now in verse twenty three, it's not necessarily Moses that we're talking about, but who's what does verse twenty three mention? His parents. And what did it say? His parents hit him because they saw he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the, of the king's edict. Now, what was the king's edict? You guys remember the king's edict? Pharaoh, all newborn boys were to be, that were Hebrew were to be killed by drowning in the Nile River, which is a really bad way to die, either drown or get eaten by a crocodile or a hippo. You've seen the Discovery Channel. The Nile, I mean, you've... Have you ever seen those battles? What, you know, what, what would be a worse way to die? The crocodile or the hippo? It doesn't matter. It's <laughs> gruesome, especially if you're a little baby. And so the parents said, we really don't care what Pharaoh says. We're going to obey our conscience and defy the king's orders because this is a moral decision. What's the moral decision here? What's the king basically saying? Infanticide which is the killing of infants, mass murder of innocent babies. And the Hebrew parents who knew God's you know, standards said, we can't participate in that. So when the nation is calling me to do something that is against my conscience and against God's law, I'm going to have the faith and the courage to not fear man, but fear God. I just have to say, because this is what I've been thinking about lately with things going on in the news and stuff, but it was the midwives mm -hmm. initially that refused to follow through with that. So even though it was a government thing, top down, those midwives refused. 
And they're the ones that kind of kept it mm -hmm. from being, you know, so that, I don't know, that's just been something I've been thinking about and praying about. Is it that the people that are in that mid? The middle? I just see it happening now, you know, not to throw them in the Nile, but we're seeing it sure. kind of happen in those people. It's, it's one thing to sit and talk about stories of radical courage of people around the world, you know, people getting martyred and, you know, butchered for their faith. But what radical choices do we really have to make on a daily basis to, to, to be not fearing man? I mean, I, it's probably different for each person at your workplace or, 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 or maybe associates that you have. Um, there's always that issue of, am I going to fear what people have to say or am I going to fear what God's will is and do the right thing? What were Moses' parents more concerned about? They were more concerned about doing the right thing than they were about Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the land. He could have, if he would have found out, they could have had, you know, they could have been killed. Okay? So that's the first thing we see about, really about, not about Moses' faith, but his parents' faith. It takes radical courage to stand up for Christ and do the right thing. And that's true faith. Now, here's the second thing. Oh, we can go back and read the passage. Um, I think we just kind of pretty much know the story, right? It's back in Exodus 1, 15 through 22. Um, now, let's look at the second feature here. I don't know if she skipped that. Yes, there's some things that have been skipped. Um, the second feature, it's not on your screen or on your sheet, is that authentic faith suffers loss to gain Christ suffers loss to gain Christ. Let's go back to Exodus 2. Authentic faith suffers loss to gain Christ. And that should remind you of a passage in Philippians, if you've been reading. Let's look at verse... Um, well, let's look at verse 10. Exodus 2, 10 and 11. Actually, 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, obviously here we're not going to condone what Moses did in murdering because he's a human being. But he was trying to uphold justice, and he has to flee. But back in the Hebrews passage, it said that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And that word refuse here means to disown or to renounce. He disowned his royal upbringing. What, what did Moses have? Everything his heart desired. I mean, he basically, he was adopted into the court of Pharaoh. If there were cars he wanted or chariots... He could get them. If there were fine women, he could get it. If there was good wine, he could get it. If there was gold, anything that he wanted, he had at his disposal. 
And what did he say? I'm going to renounce all of that to identify with my people, to suffer loss. And this is a direct indictment upon the church in Hebrews. Because what had this church done? There were those that abandoned the church out of fear of not wanting to be associated with other Christians. Remember back in Hebrews 10.25? Let's just scoot scoot back a few few chapters. Hebrews 10.25. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There were some that were neglecting to meet together because they were embarrassed. They were living in fear. They didn't want to associate with the church. It'd kind of be like this. Any of you guys watch The Apprentice or The Celebrity Apprentice? I mean, it's kind of a guilty pleasure. We watch, I watch The Celebrity Apprentice. I don't know. It's an interesting take in human behavior. Um, but now, like, Celebrity Apprentice is just weird. But the original Apprentice is where you got, like, a person that could, if they, if they got hired by Donald Trump, they would get to get a high-level job, high pay. They'd get to meet all the celebrities. They'd have this huge life. It would be like somebody won The Apprentice and said, thank you, Donald Trump, but I want to go back and continue you know, flipping burgers at McDonald's. It's basically what Moses said. I am not going to take part in all that Pharaoh has because I want Jesus more. Now, we look at that and think, that's insane. For, to the world, you think, Moses, what are you doing? You have money, you have power, you have prestige, you have popularity, you have women, you have wine, you have money, you have everything this world values. Why would you chuck it all for Christ? That does not make sense. What does it say there? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. He'd rather go back and be, be a Hebrew, be his own people, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of Sin. Um, yes. Oh yeah, that was on the other night. I never had thought about this before, but when Nefertari, you know, the girlfriend, yeah. tries to entice Moses, and she says, "Well, then when you become, just stay here, and when you become Pharaoh, you can set them free." You know, huh. and, and I never had really thought about that before. How did he resist that kind of reasoning? Because that's exactly the kind of reason oh, yeah. the enemy gives oh, us yeah. all the time. Oh, yeah. Hey, don't get, look, you can use your power. Don't yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's subtle. Yeah, very subtle. Yeah. yeah. The only thing is, the only thing I thought about the two, it's like, the thing that in the scripture that gets me, though, with this story is that his mother was able to grow. Yes. He grew up with his mother there. Knowing her, yes. um, And that's what I think God was so awesome with, you know. You're going to get to live in this palace, but your mother is going to come take care of you. She's going to nurse you, and she's going to raise you, basically. So I think in there, there, he's already had the faith taught to him. Like, they probably taught him, like you would any good Jewish family would have taught him the scriptures. And I think that somewhere in there, he knew that God shows the importance of a mother. More satisfying than this, and he just had that call on his life. Yeah, because she must have told him, we obey God rather than faith. You are significant, don't you blow it. Mm-hmm. Like a good Jewish mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't you blow it. Or he just saw, you know, the power yeah. of the scripture over their life and that, that was given uh-huh. Yeah, and it says that he um, he was rather be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy. The word enjoy there means to, to cling to, to hold on tightly to. 
Now, we need to talk about this passage of Scripture because there is something very powerful in there. What does this say about sin? He calls sin what it is. What does he say? The pleasures of sin. We wouldn't sin if it wasn't pleasurable, would we? Don't anybody let anybody tell you that sin isn't fun. If it wasn't fun, then we wouldn't do it. That's how sin lies to us. Sin lies to us and said, what you're going to do is going to bring you pleasure. Do it. Don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about how it affects other people. Don't worry about your relationship with Christ. If, you, if it feels good, do it. That's the way sin lies to you. And it will feel good, will it not? But what's the key word that it says there? It's fleeting. The fleeting pleasures of sin. This word fleeting means passing, temporary, literally for a season. It may be fun for a season, but what does Galatians 6, 7 through 8 say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Yes, sin is fun, and yes, it may bring pleasure, and yes, for a while it may seem like you're getting away with it, but ultimately what, what's the lie there? You don't. It's a fleeting pleasure. Now, what was the ultimate sin? Here's the question we've got to ask. What was the ultimate sin Moses would have committed had he stayed in Egypt? The same sin these Hebrew Christians were struggling with, idolatry and apostasy. He would have shrunk back in fear, stayed comfortable in Egypt, and not been who he truly was. Who was he truly? An Israelite. His identity, he would have sacrificed his entire identity, sacrificed his relationship with Christ, and, and sacrificed everything. But what did he suffer? Verse 26. He suffered the reproach of Christ. Now what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that he suffered the reproach of Christ? The, the, the only thing I can think that comes the closest to what really that means is in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, when Paul says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, PG-13 word there in the original language, in order that I may gain Christ. I won't say what the word is, but it's somewhere between poop and the S word. Okay. <laughs> you can fill in the blank, I guess. But Paul says, I consider all of that, everything I had, is a loss compared to knowing Christ. So for Moses, he says, everything that was at my disposal in the, in the Egyptian Pharaoh's court, wine, money, women, power, popularity, prestige, I count all of that as loss to know Christ. Now here's what's even more amazing about Moses. Does somebody have a Kleenex? Is there a Kleenex in here? Or? I don't know if there's any Kleenex in here. 
Here's the amazing thing, because I'm going to sneeze here in a minute, and that's going to get really gooberish. Um, you got some money? Oh, you just throw them up here. That's fine. Um, thanks. Yeah, let's make a deal. Here's the amazing thing about Moses. It's one thing for Paul to say, I count everything a loss compared to knowing Christ, because what did Paul know? Paul knew the resurrection. Paul had met Jesus Christ personally on the road to Damascus. Had Moses ever seen Jesus? Yeah, and Paul was yeah taken up to the third heaven. Had Moses ever had the experience that the New Testament Christians had? No. I'm not saying his faith was greater, but it's a, it's a different kind of degree of faith because he was looking forward to Jesus. He must have known something about Jesus even, you have to think, I mean, we don't want to get into the minds of Bible characters because that's probably not a good thing to do. But when God told Moses to do the Passover, and every time Moses like slit the throat of a, of a lamb and threw the hyssop on the people and threw the blood on the people and, and all this blood sacrifice, you wonder what was going through Moses' mind during that time. I wonder if he was thinking, I wonder if there's somebody coming in the future. Because Moses did, they said, there's someone greater than I that's coming. I wonder if Moses knew in his mind, there's going to be a man, the God-man, that's going to come and be the lamb that's going to make it once and for all. And that's what I'm living for as opposed to Egypt. Because the text here says, he considered the reproach of Christ, Christ, greater than the wealth and treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Now, for, for, for Moses, what was the reward? Christ. Um, oh, here's the question. Is Jesus your greatest treasure and your pleasure? Why do I use those two words? What's a treasure? Something you value the highest. What's your pleasure? Something you enjoy the most. So the question is, do you value Jesus the most and do you enjoy Jesus the most out of anything in this world has to offer? Is he your treasure and is he your pleasure? Because if you were to ask people on the street or even look up in, in our own hearts, what would we say we treasure and we pleasure? It would be very sad, I think, for us to really stop and think, what do I really treasure and what do I really pleasure? And is it Jesus? Something to be thinking about. Now, there was a very strong reason why Moses did all this. I'm getting ahead of myself. What was he doing? He was looking forward to the reward. Looking here really conveys it was a concentrated, continual effort of looking. He was keeping his eyes fixed on Christ. And then here's the third feature of, of Moses' faith. Authentic faith endures through overwhelming opposition. Not only does it take courage, not only does it take renouncing the pleasures of life, but it takes endurance. What does it say in verse 27? In verse 27, it says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured the rage of the king. And it says here he left Egypt. If you go back to the original language, the word left, leave behind, really means to abandon or forsake. It's a stronger way. It wasn't just like, okay, I'm, I'm getting out of Egypt. I'm just walking out of Egypt. 
It's the exodus. What was Egypt? What was the exodus? We are leaving behind everything and we're forsaking that place and we're walking to the promised land. And we have courage to do that because it says he was not afraid. Now, do you think that Moses would have been a little afraid? What happened? What caused Pharaoh to be mad? We'll see that in just a moment. His firstborn son was killed. Then it's enough to tick off the king of the land to get his armies chasing after you. And what does Moses say? Bring it on. We're going. They didn't say it exactly like that. But let's hear what he said in Exodus 14, 13 through 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. I love that passage of Scripture. God's going to fight for you. What do you what, 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 what's the only thing you need to do? You don't need to talk. You don't need to argue. You don't need to bicker. You don't need to yell. You silently wait upon the Lord, and He'll fight your battle. Fear not. Oh, and by the way, when that sea parts, you've got to walk through it. <laughs> Can't just stay on the, on the shore. Now, what does it say there? Why was he doing this? Who is he looking at? Him who is invisible. That's an interesting statement to use for Moses. Because who was, who was Moses? Moses was really the only guy in the Old Testament that got to see part of God, the backside of God's glory. He went up on Mount Sinai. If there was anybody that had a quote-unquote face-to-face personal relationship with God in the Old Testament, more so than probably anybody else, it was Moses. But why did the writer choose to say, him who's invisible? Because he knows that none of us are Moses. Do we see God today? Anybody here seen God? He is. We wouldn't be alive if we did. He is the invisible God. So why is it so important to walk? We walk by faith, not by sight, right? We can't see God. Have you ever stopped to think, and I think, were we ta- I think we were talking about this in our Tuesday morning men's study, how crazy it is what we believe as Christians? Just ever stop thinking about what we believe? Okay, here's what we believe as Christians. There's a God who's absolutely holy and perfect, And he created the world by speaking it into existence. And then this God came in the flesh through Jesus Christ and was born of a virgin. And he lived a perfect life and never sinned once in thought, word, and deed. He was totally innocent and they nailed him to a cross for a crime he didn't do. And while he's on that cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them while they're beating him to a pulp. And then they lay him in a tomb and three days later he rises again. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And then he's up in heaven ruling and reigning. And one day he's coming back and he's going to make all things new. Now, for us as Christians, we're like, yeehaw, that's the message we love. But for the world, it's like, say, what you talking about, Willis? You remember different strokes? What you talking about, Willis? What in the world are you talking about? That makes no sense. We can't see Jesus, but you're believing in him. We have a faith that is invisible. We live by faith, not by sight. And so when we go through hardships, when we go through struggles, when we go through opposition... What does it require? Endurance. He endured. How do you endure? You keep your eye on Him who's invisible. 
knowing that His promise is going to sustain you. Listen to Romans 8. I'll give you some encouragement. What overwhelming opposition are you facing today? Romans 8, 31-32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the, and the rhetorical answer is nobody. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? There's two things in that. There's really three things in that passage of Scripture. Number one, God is for us. Number two, Christ was given for us. Number three, we've got all things through God. What else do we need? And that's, yes. In Deuteronomy in chapter 34, when it talks about, um, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So... Yeah, there's a big question because I think that when Moses went into the tent, it said he went in the tent and he met God face to face. Now, in another passage, it said, nobody can see my face and live. So here's my personal interpretation of that. I think it was the glory cloud of God manifested there in the tent that Moses was able to experience, but it wasn't the actual full-on Shekinah glory of God because I think Moses would have died if he saw the full-on Shekinah glory. So I think that Moses had a special, because he was Moses, had a special, intimate experience with God that not everybody else had. But I don't think it was, because the Bible says God lives in, in invis- He's the immortal, invisible light, God, and He lives in unapproachable light. And the visible expression of the invisible God is Christ. Um, so we really don't know what that face-to-face is, but it can't mean like bare naked face to face because we know that he would have died. So it had to have been some type of special grace that Moses was given. That's my best answer. So, All right, verse 28 is the Passover, and we celebrated this last week, but I want us to look at a little bit more. Let me give you a quote by P.T. Forsyth many years ago. Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth, was put into what He did there. On this, the whole church rests. If you move faith from that center, you've driven the nail in the church's coffin. The church is then doomed to death, and it's only a matter of time until she expires. Do you agree with that statement or not? If you move the cross away from the center of what the church believes, you pretty soon don't have church. So, What is authentic faith? What's the last thing we see here in Moses? Authentic faith, trust in God's provision of a substitutionary substitutionary atonement. There's two things that it said here that Moses did. By faith, he, number one, kept the Passover, and number two, sprinkled the blood. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 12, and let's read the Passover account because I think it's important that we read it in context, because there's just one little passage here in Hebrews about the Passover. He kept it, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer might not touch them. And touch them, who's the them that the destroyer might not touch? Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews 11. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them, the Israelites, which means what? If the blood was not sprinkled they were in danger of having the destroyer destroy them. 
So there is a provision that has to be applied that the Hebrews had to do. So let's go back and see that. So let's go back to Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Um, I'm going to kind of just paraphrase because I think a lot of this, we, we know the story. God says to Moses and Aaron, you know, you're going to celebrate Passover. Go get a lamb without blemish. Keep it in your house for, for 14 days. Take some of the blood. Go at twilight. Kill the lamb. Put it on the lintels of the door and posts um, and, and put it on, on, the, on your house. Eat, eat the Passover meal with the bitter herbs and all that good stuff. Um, and then get your sandals and on your staff ready and your sandals because it's the Lord's Passover. Um, the angel of death is going to strike the firstborn and you need to get out of there. And then when he sees the blood, when the destroyer, the angel of death, sees the blood, the provision that's made, then he knows. So let's look. Let's pick up in verse 13. Let's pick up in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you, destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, God says there's a condition. What is the condition? He's got to see the blood. Now, here's the issue. In order for us... In order for you to truly understand the beauty, uh, one of the first things we need to see here is that God is a God of justice and He will execute His wrath against sin. Let's just say it this way. God is a holy God. But we all agree with that. God's holy and He has to punish sin in order to be a holy God. So in order for us to truly understand the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ, you and I need to come to grips with the fact that God is absolutely holy and He has every right to incinerate us off this planet in judgment and He would do us no wrong. But there's a way, there's a way not to experience His wrath and judgment. What's the way? The blood of the lamb on the lintels and the doorposts. There had to be a substitute now, I want you to think about something for a moment here. Here's something we often overlook in this story. Was Israel any less guilty than the Egyptians? Did they have any merit that made them acceptable to God or worthy of salvation? Were they more spiritual? Were they more religious? Absolutely not. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 20, it, it tells us that Egypt, Israel was just as guilty as Egypt. So... Israel deserved to have God's justice just as much as Egypt did. Wasn't one difference. God provided a substitutionary atonement for the Israelites in the lamb that was the, the blood sprinkled. So let's go up and pick up in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. 
For the Lord will pass through the strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep His service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the house of the people of Israel in Israel and Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, guys. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Okay, so they're to go get hyssop, just to let you know what hyssop was. Um, hyssop was a plant known for its cleansing power, and they were to sprinkle it on the doorposts and the lintels of the house. I want you to think about the deafening scream of agony that would have happened at midnight. As the text says, there was a great cry. What did people find out? Every single one of their firstborn children were dead. I think it was the firstborn son. Let's just go back and read. The firstborn. It could be whatever. Yeah. Yeah, their livestock were killed till. So, let me just ask you a question here. How many plagues were before Passover? Nine, right? These nine plagues presented no danger to the Israelites. Why did the first nine plagues not have to bother the Israelites? They were in the land of Goshen. God had put a hedge of protection around the Israelites where they weren't the gnats, the flies, the you know, cattle disease, the boils. All that stuff did not apply to the Israelites. But this... Tenth plague applies. It's conditional. What's the condition? A lamb had to be slaughtered and its blood applied to the doorframe of the house. What would have happened if the Israelites didn't obey that? They would have died. What happens if they went outside? They would have died. What did God have to do? God had to See the blood. So there is a provision of a substitutionary atonement for the revision for the Israelites. This provision requires faith. It's not automatic. The people had to keep the Passover. They had to sprinkle the blood. Only when faith was exercised in the provision that God provided were they actually saved from His wrath. So is forgiveness... Is Christ dying on the cross forgiveness automatic for every person out there? No. Okay. What's the what's the condition that has to be met? 
You have, to, you have to receive Christ. You have to believe in Christ. You have to trust in the provision that God has made by faith. So not everybody's saved, right? Only those that have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, have trusted in His substitutionary atonement, have trusted in the provision that God has made, they're the ones whom God applies the blood to their hearts, and they are saved. Now, think about this, just metaphorically, because I think it's interesting in the story. What were the two things that Israelites were delivered from in the Passover? The, the first thing, literally, let's talk about what the Israelites were literally saved from, and let's jump to the spiritual realm, what we're saved from spiritually. First of all, they were delivered from bondage. But what, what were they in, in, Israel, in Egypt? They were slaves. They were in bondage to, to Pharaoh. Secondly, what else were they saved from? The wrath of God, God's justice, God's punishment. Okay, So two things, bondage and wrath by the substitute of a lamb. Okay, let's fast forward to the New Testament, John 1.29. John the Baptist says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's interesting that Jesus is called the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, For Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. What does the Bible say about us today? Are we without Christ in bondage? Are we without Christ under God's wrath? Yes. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So just like the Israelites were in bondage to Pharaoh, we're in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Just like the Israelites would be under God's wrath if they didn't put the blood on their doors, we are by nature children of wrath. And so when Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb comes, what does he do? He saves us from God's wrath and he saves us from bondage. Now, the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, let's go back to Hebrews. It goes kind of through the rest of the Old Testament. You've got Joshua, you've got the... Jericho, you've got Rahab, you've got Gideon and the judges, you've got David and Samuel, and then you kind of go into the prophets and it talks about Daniel and Elijah, and, and um, all these receive their commendation. One thing I want you to notice all throughout Hebrews chapter 11, does God ever once tell us to keep our eyes fixed on Moses? Does he ever tell us, what does he, does he ever tell us to do anything in, in verse 11, I mean chapter 11? Chapter 11 is descriptive, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He never says, emulate the faith of Moses. He never says, look to Moses, look to David, look to, look to Joshua. But when we get to chapter 12, we've got a therefore. So chapter 12, I think, links everything back to, to chapter 11. So let's look at 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and who are those witnesses? the people he's just talked about in chapter 11. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. That's the key word there. The primary command in this verse is let us run. Why? What is our motivation to spur us on to run? 
The reason is that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's why we run. We've got these witnesses that, we've, that, 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 that have gone before us, that we see their faith. How are we to run? Well, positively and negatively. Negatively, what? Get rid of every weight and sin which clings to you. So get rid of the sin. Get rid of anything that's going to tangle you up. Positively, run with endurance. So we're commanded to lay aside every weight. There's some passages for the sake of time we'll skip over. Romans 13, 12 through 14. You can go back and read those. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Just basically talk about putting off sin. Positively to run with endurance. Um, when we think about endurance, this was a pentathlon in the ancient Greek games. It was a marathon, not a sprint. The word race here is where we get our English word agonize. It was a contest, a brutal marathon, a grueling race that evoked images of exerting maximum effort to reach the finish line. So what's the Christian life? Is it a sprint or is it a grueling, agonizing, battered race of endurance that we run? Okay, but if that's all there was to this passage, it would be very depressing, wouldn't it? Gee, thanks. Sign me up for that. We've got to look at verse 2. It's the who's the finish line. This is the ultimate, the finish line. Fixing our eyes or looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Literally, we're to be constantly, continually as a lifestyle fixing our gaze on Jesus. And here's a powerful truth that we need embedded in our hearts tonight. The more you look at Christ, the more He becomes glorious to you. So the question is, well, how do you look at Christ? I can't see Him. How do you, how do you look at Christ? Well, you keep your eyes on Him through the Scriptures and how God has revealed Him to you in the Scriptures and through prayer. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glories, inheritance in the saints. And we've got that 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6. through 6. You can go back and, and read that. Why is Jesus so unique and excellent and praiseworthy and valuable? What does it say here? <laughs> Who is He? He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The founder is an interesting word there. It really means two things. The founder of our faith means that Jesus is our commander, or He's our prince. He's our leader. It also has a very unique meaning that He's, he's also our pioneer or trailblazer, the one that's gone before us. And He's also our perfecter. So He is the leader, the captain, the trailblazer, the one that's going to perfect us. What did He do? He, this is an amazing passage of Scripture, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. The cross was shameful. It was reserved only for the vilest of criminals. Only slaves and rebels were crucified. This was the most debasing form of punishment. And as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, does Jesus go there for His own sin or for our sin? Let me give you another quote here from somebody. Calvin said, If we do not perceive 
our wretchedness and poverty, we shall never know how desirable is that remedy which Christ has brought to us or approach Him with due passion and affection. The cross won't be sweet to us unless we realize what it took to put Jesus there. And where's Jesus now? He endured it, and He's seated. And we talked about this earlier in Hebrews. In other words, the fact that Jesus is seated means that His work is totally accomplished. We call this the finished work of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God. The work is done. And I, I mentioned this earlier. Not once, never, does He tell us to fix our eyes on Moses or Abraham or Noah or Joshua or David. We're never called to fix our eyes on these because there's only one who's worthy of our gaze and His name is Jesus. But I want you to think about one other thing that this passage says that's mind-boggling. Did you catch it? Why would the cross be a joy? The joy that was before Him. There was a joy that was before Jesus when He went to that cross. What was the joy that Jesus was before Him when He went to the cross? Because it's not... Getting nailed to a cross and having God's punishment come down upon you does not sound joyful. Why would that be a joy to Jesus? I think there's two things here. Number one, it brought him joy to do the ultimate will of his Father. Um, He willfully went to the cross because this was the predetermined plan of the Trinity and how to save sinners. And I think Jesus had joy because he was accomplishing what his Father had called him to do. He was obedient to the point of death. It brought him joy. Remember what he says, I always do what pleases the Father. I thought it brought joy for Jesus to complete the Father's work. But also, think about this. I think it brought great joy that Jesus was purchasing us. In Isaiah, it says when he was hanging on the cross, he saw his offspring. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he saw you and me. And he knew what he was getting. And I think that brought him joy to know that he was purchasing himself a bride. We can't really get into the, uh, to the, to the whole weight of what the cross is but i got another spurgeon quote for you tonight can't go another time you know i just can't can't go without spurgeon sometimes can you gaze upon him without tears as he stands before you as the picture of agonizing love pray that christ would print the image of his bleeding self upon the tablets of your hearts all day that's a great prayer that print the image of his bleeding print the image of the bleeding christ on your hearts all day that you could gaze upon Him. What does the old hymn say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We've got about 13 minutes, so I want to kind of um, just kind of... Chapter, five, chapter 12, 5 through 11, I'll summarize it in one sentence. God disciplines His children for your good. Let's move on from that. Are you ready? <laughs> Hebrews 13, 1 through 8, there's some interesting passages there of just real practical theology. Like, it's been real deep theology so far, hasn't it been in Hebrews? Like, deep theology. Now, I think it's real practical in 13. Thir- chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Keep on loving each other. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. That's a kind of an interesting thought. Be hospitable. Number three, verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you're also in the body. So remember your fellow 
Christians who are in prison. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So just practical theology there. Love one another. Be sexually faithful. Don't love money. Um, Remember those in prison. Entertain angels unaware. And then a sobering passage for me is Hebrews 13, 17. And at first glance, you may think, well, this is kind of extreme as a church member. I don't know if I want to do this. And I'll, I'll just leave it hanging out there. Your responsibility, but for my responsibility, it's very sobering. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What does that tell you about me as pastor? I better like my job. We don't want you to groan when you see this. Yeah, yeah. I I will have to stand before God and give an account of how I shepherded you. That's spooky to me. Not spooky. It's not spooky. It's sobering. And some guys want these huge churches, like these mega churches of 10,000 people. And I'll quote what Mark Dever says a lot to young pastors. He says, on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you'll be thankful for the, if you're in a small church, you'll be thankful for the allotment he's given you because you'll have to give an account. Um, And so that's why I take very seriously the shepherding ministry because I know that I'm not just shepherding you because it's my job. I'm shepherding you because it's my calling and I have to answer to God and how I do that. So it's being a pastor should never be a profession. It's not a profession. It's a calling that God has upon men whom He set apart to shepherd. And your responsibility is let it be a joy for me. <laughs> I'm just going to read the scripture there. Make me glad to do it. It says it's no advantage of you for to have a to have a pastor that's not happy. So I'll just leave that there. Um, let's let's end with the benediction because this is my favorite part of Hebrews, the benediction at the very end. I, I would pray this for your life, and um, I just think it's a wonderful passage of scripture, verses 20 and 21. Um, and we can just break this down. I, I don't have this. Um, Let's just talk about it. Now, may the God of peace... Let's just stop right there. Aren't you thankful God's a God of peace? He's brought us peace through Christ, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Aren't you thankful for the resurrection? That there's an empty tomb. Who's Jesus? The great shepherd of the sheep. Aren't you thankful that you have a great shepherd? By the blood of the eternal covenant, aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ saved you with His blood? Now, this God of peace, this great shepherd of our souls, this great blood-giving sacrifice of Christ, what is He going to do? Verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Aren't you thankful that God equips you to do everything good according to His will? Is it up to us? No, He's working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. How? Through Jesus Christ, why? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
So as you leave this place tonight and you think about your life, think about because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the power of God in your life, He can equip you to do everything He wants for His glory by His power working in you. We hear a lot about equipping. I want to be equipped. How many of you feel, don't feel equipped? You feel weak. You feel clueless. You feel like, I don't have what it takes. Yes, you're weak, and yes, you're clueless. And I am too. But the promise from this scripture is that God can do that. He can equip you with everything good to do His will because God works in us to do that. He hasn't left us to ourselves. And I'm so thankful that it's because of the blood of Christ and it's because of the resurrection of Christ that can happen and that God works in us that which is pleasing and it's all to God's glory. So the whole book of Hebrews, when we started, what did we say was the whole focus of the book? It's to give us a portrait of the greatness and the majesty of Christ. And as we've come to the end of the Hebrews, have we seen Christ in greater light, in greater glory? And have we understood what it means to endure in faith? And I think it's fitting that he closes that with the equipping. Because what has he been saying all along? Don't fall back. Endure. Don't go back. Have this faith. And probably by the end of this message, you're thinking, I'm beaten up. Okay, you've beaten me up enough. And then you get to the grace here at the end. God's going to equip you. God's going to do it. God's going to get you through. God's going to make sure that you finish the race. And there's a great promise for a true believer. God will ensure that you endure. It's a little rhyme, isn't it? I didn't mean for that to rhyme. God will ensure that you endure. Meaning that God will make sure, God will work in His power to make sure that you finish the race, that you endure to the end that you get to the finish line, that you fight the good fight. If you're a true Christian, He will make sure. It doesn't mean you won't have bumps on the road. It doesn't mean that you won't you know, fall into sin at times. It doesn't mean that you may backslide. It just means that God will get you there. And for some people, it's bumpier roads than others. But the bottom line is God will get you there. So, All right. We're done for the night. We've got six minutes unless there's any more questions, comments, or... I have, I have a question. Yes, Anne. Yes. Uh, or no, Moses, when the, the parents were saying we, they, didn't, they weren't afraid, they had no fear they, about, they didn't put Moses out to get crowned. Is that fear in the Hebrew, <laughs> that, like fear, or is that a reverence, they had more of a reverence for God? That they were um, I can't imagine that they weren't afraid. Well... It's probably the, um, are you talking about the Hebrews passage? Yeah, where they were, Moses, they were, they were not afraid. The Egyptians said, kill all the male children, and the parents said, they didn't fear, they were going to put them in the basket. Yeah, that's, um, okay, let's look here. His parents were not afraid. So, uh, verse 23. Well, there's the the Greek word is phobeo. Phobeo. Um, sorry. Um, which here's a, here's a, here's what you need to learn about word studies 
Phobeo means to be afraid. We get our word phobia from it. And sometimes there's a, depending on the context, it can be like a terror fear, like I'm really afraid, or it can be a reverent fear. It, it depends on the context. I would say from the context of this is that they had a reverent fear of God. Are you asking, did they have a fear of God or did they have a fear of man? I guess my question is, what kind of fear do they have of God? And I, know, and I think somehow we have to just, just say that somehow God in His sovereignty must have produced within them a supernatural courage that they were going to defy the odds and do what was right regardless of the outcome and it was a supernatural fear. That's my take on it. And I don't... Yep, saddling up. <laughs> So, um, I don't know if I answered your question there. Um, it was more, well, I guess I'm trying to say it's more of a fear, fearful reverence of the Lord and not doing what he would yes. versus yes. being afraid. Yes. Not afraid of what Pharaoh was. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're right there. Yeah. Yeah. It was more of a, it was more of a fear of, I guess the, what did Jesus say? Um, I don't have the exact address, but I'll paraphrase it. It says, um, don't fear him who can kill you, but fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. And then later on he says, do not fear, because God knows the numbers of your head. So I think what Jesus is saying is that ultimately there's a fear of man that's, that's so natural to humans, but ultimately what should trump that is a fear of God and the fact that God is sovereign and powerful and that we will answer ultimately to Him. That's a hard thing to, to grasp, I think. It's kind of a conundrum, too, because we've been saved. Right. So while we have to answer, we don't have to take it close. Right, exactly. And there's, and there's two types, and I think I've talked about this before. Oh, we'll stand up. As a, there's two types of fear of the Lord. There's a terror fear, and there's a worship fear. Um, because if you trace the Hebrew word for fear and the Greek word for fear, it's really the same word, but the context determines which type of fear you have. A terror fear is what a lost person or a, an unsaved person fear, feels or experiences. Because they relate to God as their judge. But once you become a Christian, it's not a terror fear anymore because we're not afraid that, I mean, the price has been paid. We've already been saved. We don't relate to God as our judge because our sins have been judged in Christ. We relate to God as our Father. And so there's still a fear of God as our Father, but it's a worship fear, a reverent fear, as a child would fear, you know, as you would fear the holiness of God. But it's not like we're going to cower in fear that He's going to punish us or judge us because He's already judged our sins in Christ. For the lost person, they, they can't have a worship fear of God until they become a Christian. Now, they may be on the path to that as God's working to bring about faith in them, but ultimately, a lost person relates to God in terror fear. And the problem is most people don't even 
most people don't even relate to God in fear at all <laughs> because they're just basically, do I really need to fear judgment? Do I need to fear God? So part of, part of the goal of evangelism in some ways is to get people to see, to get people to be afraid. And that's kind of a weird thing to say. We want people to get afraid of God in a good way so they get saved so they can fear God in a good way. It's kind of a weird way of putting it, but um, yeah. But we also want to balance that with God's love too. So we don't want to always want to ba- we don't always want to be so much on God's wrath that we don't. We've got to keep God's wrath and God's love in balance, or God's holiness and God's love. And we always got to keep those in balance because those meet at the cross. God poured out His love upon us in the cross. God poured out His justice upon Christ, and so. God is the just and the justifier in the cross. So his love and his justice meet together there in the cross. So I've kept you guys one minute late, so I want to respect your time. So let's pray, and then I'll let you go. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And Lord Jesus, that's what we want to do. We want to keep our eyes fixed upon you. You're the author and finisher of our faith. And thank you for the joy that you had, Jesus, in enduring the cross despising the shame for us and then being seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven that you are our glorious King and we wait the time that you're going to return and bring us home and in that meantime, help us to have the active, obedient faith to just say yes, Lord, to whatever you call us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.